This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman and legal scholar Cass Sunstein changed the world with their respective bestsellers, Thinking Fast and Slow and Nudge. Now, in collaboration with strategist Olivier Siboni, Danny and Cass have produced Noise, a landmark book exploring unwanted variability in human judgment and the remedies we can take to make better decisions. Earlier this summer, Danny, Cass and Olivier joined Diana Fox Carney for a live stream in conversation event at How To Academy. Danny, welcome. Can you explain to us what you mean by noise? To explain noise, I think it's easiest to think of measurement. So suppose there is a line and, and you have a ruler and you're measuring and the ruler is very finely graded and you're making multiple measurements of the length of the line. And then you will find that you can classify errors. There are two ways of being inaccurate. And one is bias, which is where the average error is different from zero. And the other is noise, where there is variability. Of error. And it's very clear that even if the measurements on average are correct, that is, there is no bias, you're inaccurate if your measurements are all over the place. Cass, can you explain why noise matters? Sure. So suppose you have a hospital where half of the doctors overdiagnose and put three people through a battery of tests and half of the doctors underdiagnose and say to people, go home until you're really, really sick. That's a noisy hospital. On average, it might be okay, but half of the patients are being subjected to something that is not fun and is expensive, and half of them are being subjected to something that might mean they end up dying. I think that's a very key point in the book. Intuitively, we, we might want to balance those out and say, well, on average, it's fine because you're underdiagnosing and overdiagnosing. But as you've explained, in a clinical setting, and indeed in many other settings, that's absolutely not the case. You're adding error on both sides, and there's a great cost to that. One of the interesting things when you read this book, as, as everyone will, I hope, is that when the authors begin to talk about noise, it's very quick. We, we, we recognize it. We understand that we expect variability in judgment and we can put ourselves in situations where we sort of accept that. 
But why are we willing to accept noise, whereas we get very exercised when we hear that something is biased? Perhaps you can help us with that, Olivier. Well, it's a, it's a very interesting observation you're making. When If you hear that, to take another example that we talk a lot about in the book, if you hear that in the judicial system, some defendants are uh, sentenced to a longer sentence in prison for the same crime because, for instance, of the color of their skin, we're going to obviously find this entirely intolerable. But if we hear that some judges will sentence the same person to a different sentence because they just happen to be a different judge and to have a different point of view, that is something that we tend not to notice. And the reason we tend to notice it in this example is actually very simple. We don't notice it because we never see it. We can never see what a different judge would have sentenced me to after I've been sentenced by a particular judge. And we don't think of asking that question because we don't think statistically about the entire judicial system. We look at each case and each case may seem okay. And if it doesn't seem okay, we're going to look for a bias as an explanation or for some other explanation of why there was a mistake in that case. But we're not going to step back and ask, what is it that creates noise in this system? And what we try to describe in noise is how to think more statistically, how to step back and take an outside view of the system to try to hear the noise. It's interesting. You use the phrase explanatory charisma. You suggest that bias has more explanatory charisma. We, we, we always seek a causal uh, reason why a decision ends up the way it is, even if in reality there is no causation behind it. And I think you also expose some of the almost inherent variability within decision making, almost biological variability. You suggest that our, just as a basketball player can't always make the shot from the line, our brains don't always react in exactly the same way. So this is biological, but there are also reasons why on any given day, individuals will vary from each other, but also we will vary ourselves. So perhaps um, coming back to Danny, you can talk us through these different types of variability and why understanding that is important. Well, it's easiest to think of a particular example and our favorite example in the judicial system and judges passing sentences. So one form of noise that we call level noise is that some judges have a higher level of sentencing than others. Some judges are severe, others are more lenient, and that creates noise. This, by the way, this different judges, they differ in their individual biases, but those differences among judges, because they're supposed to, justice demands that they be interchangeable, that creates noise. So that's one form of noise. Another familiar form of noise, and that is very easy to understand and appreciate, is what we call occasion noise. And this is for the same individual on different days of the week or different hours of the day would make different judgments. So judges who are in a good mood uh, tend to be more lenient and they tend to think differently about cases. There are effects of temperature on, on judges. The comparison to the previous case is likely to have an effect. If the previous case was very severe, the judge may be more lenient as a contrast effect. That's occasion noise. Then there is a third type of noise, which is the least, most difficult to understand, but it's probably the most important and the largest source of noise. And this is that when 
people look at the same case, when judges look at the same case or the same set of cases, judges have different tastes in crime. That is, some of them are especially severe for some types of crimes and much more lenient for others. Some are most severe to some kinds of criminals, like uh, some really don't like recidivists and others mind less. And then there are stable characteristics of individual judges, like who the defendant reminds you of, or what are your associations to different kinds of crime. What that amounts to is that people looking at the same situation, each one of us looking at a situation is prone to believe that others will see it the way we do, because the way I see the situation is the correct way. So if you are looking at the same situation and, and you are a sensible person, you'll have the same judgment as I. It turns out that that basic assumption, which is sometimes called naive realism, that I see the world as I do, and therefore you see it the same way, that this assumption is really incorrect, and that different people looking at the same case will have inexplicable, but quite large differences in their attitudes or their response to the case. That's the third form of noise. We call it pattern noise. And in the cases that we have looked at, we have the, there are clear indications that pattern noise is quite possibly the largest source of noise. It's the hardest to understand, it's the hardest to control, and probably the most important. It's very interesting, and it'll take a while for people to sort of grasp all these different categories, but the point is that there are multiple reasons why noise is likely to occur, and some of them are less expected, and some of them perhaps more expected. Can we just clear one thing up before we move on? Are there types of error that are neither bias nor noise, or does that cover the entire sort of error spectrum that we're dealing with? If you're comparing a judgment or a measurement to a correct value, then there is an error, and then the average of those errors over measurement is bias, and the variability of these errors is noise, and that exhausts errors. So this is really an exhaustive classification of bias and noise. This is a really interesting time to be thinking about noise because we've seen it happen all around us in the pandemic. I think for many of us uh, sort of naive people like myself, we thought that there would be much clearer judgments made, that science would reveal categorical answers throughout the, the globe. I mean, we're all dealing with the same problem, and therefore decision makers will come to the same conclusions based on science, which uh, was incontrovertible, and we'd all end up more or less in the same place. We've seen that this absolutely is not the case, that as, as you've described, people change in the way they interpret things. We've watched the scientists, people who we tend to think are objective. We've watched them. We've understood that they're making judgments on the, on the basis of this evidence. And this is very consequential to us. So I think I really think that, that now is a great time to, to be getting into this question. And I, I just before we go on to, to investigate some of your solutions and some of the implications of this work, I just want to ask you all kind of how you came together in this endeavor at this time, because you, you all have you know, very illustrious past careers. 
two of you, so that's uh, Olivier and Cass, were writing other books at the same time as this one. Danny has not written a book since that uh, extraordinarily uh, successful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, 10 years ago. So can you just give me an idea of whether you were all thinking about this separately and there was suddenly a meeting of minds or how that your thesis around noise developed? I'm going to start with Cass. We all have different tales, but uh, Danny is a great friend and has been for decades. And I think two years after Thinking Fast and Slow, I asked him, do you have a new project going? And he said, small ones, I don't think I'm going to do anything big. I don't think so. And then I saw him about a year later and he said, I I have an idea. I'm, I'm really interested in it. It's not small, it's large. I don't think there's going to be a book out of it, but I'm talking to a brilliant French academic, Olivier Savoni, and we're really having a lot of fun with it. And then I saw him a year later and he said, I asked him how it was going and he said, great, we're really enjoying thinking about it, working together. And I don't think we're going to have a book out of it, but maybe you never know. And then I saw him a year later and we had the same discussion, basically. And I said, this has a lot of implications for law and policy and what governments do. And there wasn't a pandemic, but the problems everywhere in medicine, for sure, there's there's noise. And so I said, why don't we have lunch? And we had lunch and talked about it. it was probably a two or three hour lunch. And I went home and thought a little like uh you met someone you really wanted to date and you didn't know if they were interested in dating you. And I was too, and you're in those situations where I was typically too shy to ask. So I was too shy to ask, but Danny asked me the next day, would you join? And uh, that wasn't a hard question. And the rest is history. And, and Olivier and Danny, you came, how did you sort of come together in this area? Well, the project really started when I was doing consulting in an insurance company and I had I had the opportunity to observe variability in judgment among underwriters in that company. And the observation and what Cass remembers that the idea that seemed to be a large idea was not that there is disagreement among underwriters. Wherever there is judgment, we expect disagreement. What was very striking was that there was a lot more disagreement than anybody expected that discrepancy was really almost qualitative. In fact, there was five times as much variability as the executives in the company expected. So that began to look like an interesting idea. And Olivier and I had collaborated before, I had also collaborated with Cass, but Olivier and I had collaborated on on issues on on thinking about management and, and areas of management. And we started talking and enjoyed the conversations and we really, had many conversations. In fact, Olivier was coming to New York to talk about this. And I was firmly telling him that there is not going to be a book, but he didn't quite believe me. So, and eventually something began to gel and then Cass joined us. And and it was only when Cass joined us that we decided to go to an agent and you know it, it looked probable that there would be a book. And, and, and lucky us, frankly, because it really is an interesting uh, area. And obviously, Cass is the, the machine behind getting the book out, but it's, it's extremely clearly written. So the book is, it is about judgment, basically. It's about human judgment and how to improve that. And there are different ways to do that. One is to look for ways to improve the individual's uh, way of making decisions. Uh, And you talk about uh, issues around active open-mindedness and and interrogating situations. But there's also 
issues around processes of making decisions and what you describe as decision hygiene. So Olivier, perhaps you could tell us what the relative importance of those two sides are and how they in fact come together to help reduce noise. Our main focus is really on what you you call the the process on the organization level and on what an organization can do to address noise because noise is essentially a problem of systems, a problem of organizations. If you're an individual making decisions, well, you're going to make decisions and you can try to make them better and decision hygiene will help you. But the people who should really care about implementing what we call decision hygiene are the organizations in which multiple people make judgments and in which you want to ensure that you minimize error, that you maximize consistency, that you avoid injustice and disparities in treatment between people who should be treated identically. That's why organizations should care about noise. And the practices we, we, we describe under the, the header of decision hygiene are really about making sure that the way decisions are made in those organizations are as immune to the factors that create noise as possible. And the reason we use this quirky phrase decision hygiene, which is slightly off-putting and intentionally so, is to remind us that it's a bit like washing your hands. When you wash your hands, you don't know, oh, this is the germ of COVID that I've eliminated, and this is the germ for the flu, and this is the germ for measles. If, at least if you succeed, if you're successful in washing your hands, you will never know what problem you've eliminated. And decision hygiene is the same thing. You need to take preventive measures in your decision-making to eliminate the sources of noise and to prevent problems from occurring without knowing what problems and without knowing in what direction they would have made your error happen. That's why it's a form of discipline, and that's why we call it decision hygiene. But it's interesting because in a way you've just described something that is, there's no loss. I mean, washing your hands, it's relatively cost-free and it could help you. That's not always the case with decision hygiene. You say in the book that it can be thankless to put in place decision hygiene. And I I think it can be, for, for the people who make decisions, they can feel perhaps demoralized by being second guessed by their institutions, for example. Now, Cass, you are a great cost benefit analysis person in in parts of your life. I'm wondering how you can think about the costs and benefits of putting in place decision hygiene and how far one needs to go down this route. Okay, so there's a great behavioral scientist, a guy in sports about whom uh, Michael Lewis wrote the book Moneyball. And he said, the guy said at crucial moments, we're not selling jeans here. And you can take that to mean the, the stakes are really high. So if we're talking about dealing with people's fundamental rights, dealing with how to deal with employees, whether to hire them, whether to punish them, whether to promote them, uh, how to deal with customers where the stakes are really high, how to deal with people who are accused of wrongdoing. So the, the problem of noise, it doesn't have the charisma, as you said, of the problem of bias, systematic error, but it's a little like the person in the movie who at the end turns out to be the most important person you didn't know. And in some movies, it's the person who actually did the murder. And noise is the source of something like murder in institutions. So the benefits of reducing noise, let's say you have a system which is all over the place. It's like a scale that has weights that aren't accurate, although the average is accurate. One thing you can do is introduce guidelines. 
So if you introduce guidelines in, for example, social security disability determinations, or if you introduce guidelines in telling whether an infant is healthy or not, that can be extremely beneficial. It can be life-saving or fairness promoting like really big time for a company that's very noisy to introduce guidelines often can ensure that there's a kind of credibility and respect. And many companies are doing that. Facebook right now is facing a big challenge with respect to uh, many things, one of which is what's it taking down? Why is it taking things down? And one solution to the noise problem there is, is guidelines. And guidelines could be very expensive to generate, but often you have the evidence and they're not expensive to generate. So benefits really, really high, costs not so high. Here's another thing that's done informally by forecasters and in medicine and in law and among engineers and among fingerprint experts. Don't just ask one, ask four and take the aggregate or the majority. If you take the majority of the aggregate, in some sense, that really cuts noise. Now, that can be more expensive than is ideal. But if you do a noise audit first and you find out the magnitude of the problem, what kind of harm it's doing, it might be asking two people or three or four or 10 is a really good idea. It might generate very high net benefits. And one of the points you make in the book is that those judgments have to be independent of each other. So there's a problem when people understand what the previous person has, uh, what opinion they have come to. So they uh, need to be independent. And it's important that you mention this, Diana, because this is a really big problem in organizations. And one big reason why noise is not noticed and is neglected. Organizations do a really good job in general of hiding noise, of suppressing it, of sweeping it under the rug. If you're hiring someone, of course, most organizations say, yeah, let's have several people interview that candidate. But what do they then do? They all get into a room, in, in most cases, thank God, not all of them, but in many cases, they all get into a room and they have a pleasant chat about the candidate. And the first person says, really great candidate, isn't he? And the second person says, yeah, absolutely. And the third person who is thinking, actually, I'm not so sure, now says, yeah, pretty good candidate, isn't he? And we haven't heard the noise that there would have been if we had gotten the independent opinions of those people. So we have lost the opportunity of, apply, of applying some of the decision hygiene that Cass was talking about. And we can persist in the illusion of agreement, in the illusion that there is no noise and that our individual judgments are all identical because we simply haven't created the conditions to express them. So the independence of opinions is a really critical factor. It's not a very difficult one to implement, but it's one that organizations very often neglect. And related to that, to be clear, you're not suggesting that diversity of opinions and uh, people making decisions is bad, right? You, you don't want to shoehorn everyone in the same direction. On the contrary. On the contrary, we are definitely suggesting that diversity is good, but that you need to make sure that it is heard. And that most of the processes that we have in organizations actually suppress the expression of that diversity. It's wonderful how people insist on having diversity and then make sure that they don't hear it. I would like to emphasize the issue of independence because it is absolutely crucial to the way to improve decision making. And it applies in various ways. So you want different judges or different individuals looking at the same topic to make judgments independent of each other, and only then do you aggregate. But you also, when you are facing a problem, the central idea of decision hygiene, I think, is that 
when an individual is facing a problem, you want to break up the problem into elements. For example, if you're evaluating a candidate, then you want to look at all the attributes that would make for success in the candidate's job. You want to evaluate each of these attributes independently of the others. And that is a very critical point. You want to delay your intuition. Intuition typically jumps to conclusions. But the idea of making independent judgments of elements or parts of the problem, when you have a profile of all the judgments that you have made of parts of the problem, then and only then do we think that you should apply your intuition and generate a global impression of the case. So a major, there are two principles that play here. One is independence and the other is delaying intuition, which we think is really critical because jumping to conclusions is a very important source of error in judgment. And I just add another sentence that decision hygiene doesn't only apply to organizations where you can observe noise or conduct what we call a noise audit. Decision hygiene, if it improves the quality of decisions, it would apply equally well to people making a single decision. That is the process of breaking up the problem, of looking at the option as if it were a candidate and looking at the various aspects of the options and then delaying intuition and only then achieving a judgment. That applies to individual decisions as much as it does to decisions that you can show are noisy within organizations. That's an interesting leap because obviously you don't see the variability, but to, to understand that noise is there and to, uh, as you say, improve decision-making is really important. I just wanted to follow up with you. You said we have to delay our, our intuition. And I just wanted you to perhaps link with your past work about system one and system two thinking. How did that inform your ideas in this space? This really is, an, is a direct extension. It's uh, the idea essentially what there in the first book I wrote on thinking fast and slow, that we tend to jump to conclusions and that slowing down the reaching of conclusions is quite often beneficial. And it's beneficial in really improving judgments in, in various ways. In the context of this book, we saw, I think, more clearly than before, the importance of breaking up a problem into dimensions and evaluate them and delaying intuition. But the idea of thinking slow uh, and the idea of delaying intuition are obviously related. Critical. So, so far we've mostly discussed human judgment, but one of the quite startling things you write in the book is that any linear model is better than human judgment. And there's a number of questions coming in. People have jumped ahead to this issue of, of algorithmic decision-making. This is obviously top of mind for a lot of people at the moment. Cass, perhaps you can explain uh, this idea of how models can help us, simple models, and then how algorithmic models and very complex models would be able to help us perhaps even further. Let me say a little bit about that, and then I'll ask Olivier to say a bit more. So the basic idea with all the fuss about algorithms is that algorithms really are continuous with rules. So if you have a rule that says, you know, certain people can be served liquor, 
or certain people are going to be eligible for certain benefits. That will be by definition noise-free, and that will reduce, eliminate random variability. And that's an important way of reducing error. Uh, with respect to the models, over to you, Olivier. Well, there is obviously a lot of talk about algorithms and a lot of worry about algorithms. And let's be clear, some of those worries are entirely justified. You can design bad algorithms, algorithms that are biased, that produce uh, discrimination, that, you know, that, that are simply bad at doing what they are supposed to do, or that are good at, at doing what they are supposed to do, but that are pursuing goals that we think are you know, bad for society. So we're not saying that all, all, all algorithms are good. What we're saying is algorithms or any kind of rule, as Cass was saying, are noise-free. And that's a benefit that we only start to appreciate if we realize how costly noise is. When we say algorithms may be biased and we forget that algorithms are noiseless, we forget a big advantage that they have over humans. And if we only measure the bias, it may be that algorithms are more biased than humans. It may also be that they are less biased than humans. That's a different question and it depends on the algorithms. But what is guaranteed is that they will be less noisy. So if we're going to make a comparison, we need to look at both sides of the error, the bias and the noise. If we only look at the bias, it's not a fair comparison. And if we forget that human judgment is as noisy as it is, and if we imply that an algorithm can be you know, bad because it's not as good as this ultimately always wise and uh, insightful human judgment, we're missing the point about noise. It's interesting because in the debate about algorithms, you often have people suggesting that as we become more and more capable in that space, we're getting to a point where machines are overtaking humans. But based on your argument, you would say that happened a long time ago. That was sort of a base level uh, outcome. And that in this noise space that, that, you know, as you say, even simple kind of linear relationships help eliminate noise. I think it is very important to qualify this point that algorithms and rules have been shown to be superior to human judgment in a large set of cases, but these cases have something in common. You can encode different characteristics of the case and you can compute some kind of a rule, mathematical or, or logical, that reaches conclusions and typically can be verified. Now, when those conditions are satisfied, in general, uh, it is found that algorithms are, make fewer mistakes than humans do and humans still don't like them. And it's, it's important to realize where our opposition to algorithm comes from. And it comes from something very deep and quite important. We really prefer the natural to the artificial. And when we think of a death from a vaccine or of a death from COVID, we clearly do not have the same attitude. The death from the vaccine, which is the result of an intervention of a choice is treated completely differently from death from the, the disease. Similarly, a biased algorithm is somehow more objectionable by a lot than a biased human. And an accident that is carried out, you know, an accident in a, in a self-driving car is viewed as more poignant, as more horrifying than an accident uh, that the driver causes. So there is that asymmetry between the natural and the artificial. We all feel it, present company included, and we are really rooting for humans, present company included. 
So that's one, one part of that you know I wanted to emphasize. And the other one is that we're very far from algorithms ruling our lives. And there are corners of our lives, for example, recommendations on Netflix or Amazon, uh, where algorithms are taking over and we actually tend to be quite grateful for them. There are other parts of our lives where algorithms are coming in, like diagnostics on dermatology or x-rays, which are improving the quality of judgments, where we're grateful. But in many decisions, it's judgment now and it's going to be judgment for the foreseeable future. And so our argument and the essential point in the book is not that we are heavily favoring algorithms. We are really oriented with the notion of decision hygiene to the task of improving judgment on the assumption that it's judgment that's going to be ruling at least for the foreseeable future. It's, I mean, that, that issue around why we have different frames of reference. We expect the machines to be perfect, right? We expect the vaccines to be perfect and we forgive humans. There is an element, we believe in human agency and decision-making is the space that we, we see that most actively happening. So that is, I think, comforting to, to understand that you're trying to find ways that humans can make decisions better. One of the other things that struck me was, although we dislike variability and certainly the examples you give in the medical space and in the judicial space, you know, unfairness in these spaces or wrong treatments based on variability of opinion are extremely damaging and we would all turn away from that. However, there are circumstances in which we perhaps benefit from a range of noisy decisions. So if every college admitted just the top kind of five candidates because they were actually the top five candidates, then that wouldn't be great for the rest of us. Um, so this sort of suboptimal world actually is a human world and one in which we can hope perhaps sometimes to gain equally, sometimes we'll lose out, but it, it's, it's a bit more of a human space that we can all play in. Do you recognize that feeling about um, variability? It's but we like diversity of practices. So if you have some places that value, let's say, geographical diversity and some places that value test scores and some places that value sports, that's great. What we mean by noise is unwanted variability. And I love this discussion because it's putting a finger on the fact that when people hear about unwanted variability, it's not as if they see red and they start getting really angry. They don't have a banner saying less noise now, but they should. So it is true, you're completely right, that we want areas where there are different values and different practices, that's part of freedom. But we don't want it if life is a lottery, so that whether someone gets something very bad or very good depends on the particular person who's chosen to make the assignment. If that happens, it's really unfair, and it might mean that an institution will be imposing terrible deprivation on half of the population and unwanted wonders on another half, unwanted meaning undeserved wonders on another half, that's really costs on both sides. So many companies, take your least favorite social media company, part of what makes it probably your least favorite social media company is that it's noisy. And that means it's, not, it's losing credibility. And what we said about options, about candidates for jobs, options are like candidates. Think if you would about climate change or about how to deal with the pandemic or any problem under the sun, there are options, they're like candidates. 
And if the treatment of the option is a lottery, if the most important moment is who's chosen to make the decision, that's a recipe for, I think, a kind of scandal. We should regard it as a scandal. And ju just to add to this, if I may, when people say that there is a good human element to the diversity of judgments and to the fact that different people will be able to be heard and to express themselves, right? So if I see a judge and I can be heard and explain my case, that's better than uh, a decision that is made mechanically, of course, uh, because all the particulars of, my, particulars of my case will be taken into account. If a candidate for university can you know, explain that she has done this and that, and that these are advantages that should be taken into account. We all want that to be taken into account. But there's a big confusion between this, which is clearly a desirable goal, and the fact that the happenstance of the person who happens to be on the other side in the organization making that decision is in fact decisive. No one would say that it's a good thing for a lottery to choose the judge who tries your case or the admissions officer who reads your admissions papers and that adds to the human quality of the decision. We all want the case to be taken into account in all its specifics, but we don't want the specifics of the judge who is looking at the case to make a big difference. That is noise, this isn't. I should add something to this, I think. When we're thinking of a committee making a decision, we don't want all the members of the committee to represent the same point of view. Uh, we want different points of view and we want different sources of expertise. So that kind of variability is desirable. We want it because it informs the decision. But what is different is conclusions, not inputs. So the variability is very useful as inputs for the decision, but the decision itself to make it dependent on a lottery, that seems really not advisable. Also, we recognize, of course, that there are many domains of life where we like variability. So as Cass was pointing out earlier, we define noise as unwanted variability. There are many domains of life where variability is very much wanted and we are not advocating the elimination of variability. That would be pretty dreadful. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. We have an enormous number of questions coming in. One of them uh, is around uh, the point of algorithmic decision-making. And as we know, Algorithms are, at this point in time, we haven't got to them being sort of self-generating. They are, they are written by individuals. And a couple of people have asked about the relationship. If, if individuals are noisy in the way they go about things and make decisions, does that noise 
carry through into the algorithms themselves, thereby reducing the consistency of the outcome produced by those algorithms, if that makes sense. I, th- I suspect, Olivier, that's one for you. Well, perhaps it's one for Danny, actually. Well, algorithms are going to be noise-free in a very specific sense, which is that when you present the same problem to the algorithm on two separate occasions, it will come up with the same answer. When you present the same problem to different judges in an organization or or to the same individual at different times, you get variable answers. So noise does not transfer to algorithm. What can transfer to algorithm is bias. And that definitely does happen. So when an algorithm is poorly constructed, when they pick the wrong variables, a classic example is Amazon looking at successful employees and then an algorithm working on this strongly discriminates against women because in the past, successful employees at Amazon were men. So when you look back and you build a rule that will extend previous practices, you are extending discrimination. This is clearly a problem that algorithm writers had better be conscious of and aware of. And there is so much talk about algorithmic bias these days that I think most writers of algorithms are quite worried about that point. Perhaps what the question was about was the fact that if you have different algorithms written by different people, these different people will produce algorithms that are different, and that is a form of noise. I guess we could we could view it in that way, but each of the algorithms will be, as Danny was saying, inherently noiseless. I think actually I would differ on that. It really depends on how you construct the algorithm. If you have a set of inputs that is fixed, then different rules-creating algorithms are going to end up with fairly similar solutions because all of them will optimize. However, you can have differences in the choice of input variables, and that can be noisy, and that will produce noise in algorithms. So human decisions can cause noise in algorithms, but given a set of variables, given a set of inputs, algorithms generally tend to optimize. And the question is whether the inputs are properly chosen and whether the objective is properly chosen. If the inputs and the objective are properly chosen, the algorithms are built. We can trust the way they operate. Let's give a little data here, shall we? So um, there's evidence from New York suggesting an algorithm replacing human judges could result in a very significant reduction of the number of people who are in prison in New York and produce no change in the level of crime. So humanists, please take note, the algorithm means thousands of human beings are not in prison anymore and there's no reduction in crime. If you don't love that, then let's go with the algorithms a different way. You can keep the same number of people in jail and reduce the number of crimes by a very substantial sum, including violent crimes. So that's a domain in which the noise-free algorithms produce fantastic consequences for human beings. So would you envisage us moving in that direction if everyone takes this on board is it a question of people understanding why that's the case and then we should move there well our our book is not in praise of algorithms the title of our book is noise so our basic goal is to put noise on the view screen and to suggest we've spent a lot of very valuable time focusing on biases it's really important to get a handle on them and to reduce them we need to think also about random variability 
Decision hygiene is our principal remedy, which has nothing to do with algorithms. But we do think the discussion of algorithms needs to take on board their relative quiet and not the consequences for robots of that relative quiet, but the consequences for human beings who might not be in prison, might not be hurt, and might not be subject to inferior medical care. You emphasize the, the decision hygiene. Is it essential to understand the nature of the noise? So you describe pattern noise and uh, occasion noise and other types of noise. Do we need to really delve deep into understanding why variability is taking place? Or can we just say, we know it's there, we know kind of a priori that it's going to be there, uh, and we can just, you know, any situation we have a an approach, uh, we can do a noise audit, or we can just move straight into the decision hygiene. We don't need to understand precisely where the noise is coming from. And in fact, we won't, even if we try. We, we might hypothesize, we might speculate. What we can certainly do is measure how much noise there is in a system. We can do a noise audit, and then we can put in place decision hygiene techniques. If you are an insurance company and you realize that there is massive variability between what your claims adjusters are uh, setting as values for your claims, you don't need to spend very long asking yourself if it's because of the weather or because of when they had breakfast or because of how many years they've been in training. You can put in place procedures to help them make less variable decisions without needing to go very deep into the reasons. The reasons are interesting intellectually, but the remedies are not uh, dependent or mostly not dependent on the reasons. There is a, a little bit of noise between us on that issue because I would say that there are kinds of noise that have specific treatments. For, so for example, if you detect that some underwriters set higher premiums than other underwriters, that is something that can be corrected specifically by dealing with these underwriters. So it is useful and sometimes possible to detect, and this particularly applies to level noise. So there are how you choose to elicit a judge's responses, the scales that you use, uh, the instructions that you give, they can be tailored specifically to reduce that form of noise. Uh, there is very little that we can do about pattern noise or occasion noise except reduce the role of intuition and increase the role of fact-based judgment in the overall conclusion. And that is pure decision hygiene. And you, you don't need to know what the source of noise is and you couldn't deal with it anyway. Thank you. It's, um, it, I mean, this is a fascinating subject and it's, it's, I'm pleased to hear that there is a little bit of noise between you because otherwise you would be inhuman. So um, that, that, that's true. So. I'm going to turn to a few of the um, other questions. We have a, a question in, and you mentioned, I think it was Cass, you mentioned one's favorite social media platform um, or, or least favorite probably. But how do you think what we, in, in non-technical language, what we think now is the relentless noise and chatter of the world and this sort of information uh, chaos that goes on around us. How, if at all, do you think that these new ways of thinking, talking, and communicating are affecting us in terms of the variability of our decision-making. And I will specifically say that there are 
concerns that we are being manipulated through these uh, mechanisms and perhaps that would make us more biased, but would it also make us more noisy? Yes, so you could get an organization that is half of whose members are making judgments that are biased in one way and half of whose members are making judgments that are biased in another way. So on average, the organization is unbiased, but it's really noisy. And that could make the organization extremely unfair, or it could make it collapse for lack of credibility or bankruptcy. You could imagine a government, let's say, that is highly responsive to uh, whatever the relevant informational inputs are in the morning and then also in the afternoon. And it could be if the informational inputs are different, it'll be an, an erratic entity, a little like an erratic human being. So there's a recent study that postdated the book, that should, like yesterday study, that shows that doctors prescribe statins much more in the morning than the afternoon. And that's astounding, isn't it? We don't know from the study, which is where the error is going, but that's a problem. And it could be that informational inputs are having the same uh, consequence as it looks like fatigue is having for doctors. And we're observing in, 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 in groups that sometimes shift one way and then shift another way, uh, noise as a result of disparate information sources that are both having uh, power on different occasions. Someone has asked about the, the spheres in which this way of thinking can be most helpful. In the book, you talk about the medical system, the judicial system, you talk about underwriters, you talk about fingerprint uh, readers. You also talk a lot about just hiring decisions within firms. A couple of people have asked about business more broadly, uh, and another person asked about finance. Perhaps, Olivia, you've worked with businesses. Perhaps you can describe how this is relevant to the business world, to the finance world, and whether this can help us understand why markets seem so flippant at various times and we uh, go up and backwards and forwards on business decisions. So one, one example of a type of decisions on which we, we have actually some uh, experience of applying decision hygiene is investment decisions. Suppose you're an investment committee and you're looking at investments on a regular basis, or in fact, you're uh, simply making an acquisition from time to time. If you're a big company, the logic would be the same. What we would suggest here is that you treat options in the same way that you would treat candidates if you were hiring, but if you were hiring the right way. So how would you do this? You would look at your investments and you would say, first, let's define our investment criteria, which of course everybody does, right? Everybody has a list of things that they care about. If you're a venture capital firm, you say, I care about the quality of the management team, and I care about the quality of the product, and I care about the size of the market, and I care about the momentum of the company. So you have a list of criteria. But then you're going to do something that very few organizations are capable of doing, which is what Danny was talking about when he was talking about independence earlier. You're going to make sure that you evaluate your investment candidates on each of those dimensions separately. So if you're looking at the quality of the management team and you're looking at the quality of the product, how do you make sure your judgment of one does not influence your judgment of the other? In general, it does. And of course, they are probably somewhat correlated, but they are not as correlated as your judgments will make them seem to be. It is possible for the management team to be not great and the product to be outstanding and vice versa. So you want to find ways to make those judgments as independent as possible. 
Then when you get to the time of the decision, you're going to talk about each of those dimensions separately. And only then, after you've talked about each of the separate assessments, which we call mediating assessments, you're going to come to a final decision, which is the time when you're going to let your intuition come in. And we, we, we have a nuanced point of view here, I guess, on, on, on how to use intuition. Uh, in the sense that we don't say, don't use your intuition. We don't say, use a formula and take the average of these uh, criteria. We don't say, use an algorithm to make your investment decisions. And we don't say, behave like an algorithm to make your investment decisions. We say, look at those dimensions separately and then use your intuition. And the reason for that is your intuition will be much better in the end after it has been informed by all the evidence on each of the separate dimensions. What does not work and what people often call intuition is hasty judgment. It's quickly coming to a conclusion, but you can have a very informed intuition at the end of the judgment process that is very valuable. So that's an example of how decision hygiene, in this case, the structured judgment, which we call the mediating assessments protocol, would help businesses. There are many more. Uh, many more. Uh, hiring decisions are a prime example. Performance evaluations are a prime example, which is also uh, a striking example of noise. There is massive noise in performance evaluations, and there is a lot that can be done to reduce them. And by and large, as soon as you start measuring how much noise there is in business decisions, you find a lot. Danny, I'd like to ask us another question which has been raised, which is about risk aversion. And many organizations, and particularly bureaucracies, are felt to be very risk averse. Uh, people don't want to sort of deviate from the path. There is a lot of path dependence. Can you describe whether this process, whether it's, it's decision hygiene or um, the process that Olivier described, whether that has an impact on decision making, uh, on risk in decision making and people's willingness to go in new directions? I think one way of thinking about it or one uh, situation in which this can occur is when you have individuals making decisions on behalf of the organization, their attitude to risk is not necessarily identical to the attitude of the organization to risk. And in general, people who are making decisions that are small for the organization are much too risk averse. And they are risk averse because the consequences to them of making a mistake are quite severe. So by applying, here is one way of doing things. When you can get judgments from, say, underwriters that are not in dollars, they are in units or in evaluate, they evaluate comparative risks. So they just say, this risk is higher than, than those and lower than those. And then the translation into dollars could be done by the organization. And the, it is the translation to dollars that determine the risk aversion of the organization. So in effect, what you might use these processes for is concentrate the decision-making about risk-taking where it really belongs, which is at the level of the organization, and not mix up the risk aversion of individuals in their individual decisions. So this is a side benefit, I think, of decision hygiene, is that you can neutralize the risk aversion of individuals. One of the points you make is that we're much better as individuals at making relational decisions um, about something being better and worse 
So if we can think in those terms, that can be helpful. But another point is that a, a, a source of variability is kind of false in as much as different people make different decisions, but actually they just have different scales in their head. Um, and that, that is the problem. So we're not talking about the same thing when we try and make a decision. Perhaps you can just describe what you mean in that space and, and how one can overcome those types of problems. Well, it is really the case that different people use language differently. So uh, when someone says that a particular candidate is, is good, someone else could describe the same person as excellent. And you really want to control, that is a major source of noise. It's a source of level noise. And it's a source of noise that is relatively easy to control. That is, in an organization, an organization can train employees to use language in a more uniform way. Instead of using vague probability terms, for example, saying that an event is likely or not likely, you can train analysts to use numerical probabilities and to teach them how to use them more precisely. So this is one area of noise reduction where we are cautiously optimistic that uh, noise reduction can be achieved. We're almost out of time. I just wanted to come back at the end to this issue of human agency and ask you all to reflect on how you think we can get the best out of human agency and ensure that people feel that they're really contributing to making good decisions through the use of your framework while not being kind of straight jacketed in to a rather cumbersome, you know, bureaucratic with a sort of small uh, B process that demotivates them in, the, in, in their decision making. You don't want to demotivate people. You don't want to straight jacket people. You want people to be excited about what they do. And hopefully people are excited about making the right decisions. Now, if people are excited about making arbitrary, personal, idiosyncratic decisions, if they think that when they are making what we call judgments, where there is a correct answer, they are expressing their individuality and their personality, that is a problem. If your surgeon decides that making a diagnosis is the place to express his creativity, you might be worried about that. If your underwriter things that anyone who has a different opinion from him must be crazy, and in fact, a lot of people have a different opinion from him and are equally qualified, then the organization has a problem. So I think the question you're asking is an important one, but it calls for people to come to terms with the fact that if we all do not agree on a question we all agree has a correct error, then we have a problem. And if we think that we are expressing our individuality when we give the answer to a question that we agree has a correct answer, and the answer is not shared because there is noise, it is a problem that we need to deal with. That, without demotivating people, is a difficulty, and it calls for people to become aware of noise, which is what we're trying to contribute to. Cass, do you have anything to add to that answer? Yes, I'm a bureaucrat now, and I've been a bureaucrat before, and the enterprise of noise reduction is actually agency-promoting. It puts a spotlight on its importance. So in a meeting, everyone gets to talk independently. The second person to talk shouldn't say, I agree with the first, should say what she or he actually thinks. Also, it is a, an inspiring exercise of agency to ask yourself, not yes or no, but what are the ingredients of the problem that would lead me to yes or no? 
Only human beings can do that. And so insofar as we're reducing noise by asking people to think about what are the pieces of the problem that lead to a positive or negative answer, that is elevating and it doesn't decrease agency at all. Danny, I would ask you to reflect on that question, but also tell us what your next book's going to be about in 10 years' time. We're all waiting to hear that from you, Danny. Uh, absolutely. Uh, what I would add to what my colleagues have just said is that applying decision hygiene, introducing decision hygiene steps to an organization, how you do it is absolutely critical. The people who are going to be affected who are going to be required to apply decision hygiene must be consulted. They must feel that it's their idea. They must feel that decision hygiene helps them do their job. Unless they feel that, decision hygiene should not be imposed because it is going to be self-defeating. And the social psychology of that is really to be taken extremely seriously. And as for my next book, I will just say that I'm now 87. So I will, you know, I will leave it to chance with my next book is. <laughs> well, it's, it's been really fantastic to have you with us. Uh, I, everyone's got a treat in store. Everyone who has the book coming, it will arrive this week. I do, uh, I do recommend it. It talks through some very practical examples, which, which we haven't necessarily been able to cover this evening. I wanted to thank Julius Baer for, for helping us present this event this evening. And thank you all for taking time to talk us through your exciting uh, work and, and good luck with the book. This week's episode starred Daniel Kahneman, Cass Sunstein and Olivier Siboni. The presenter was Diana Fox Carney. Producers were Esme Bright and myself, and the show was edited by John Doughty. You can hear more from Cass in our archive. He spoke to Matthew Stadlin for the second episode of the podcast back in 2019. There's a whole lot more in the realms of psychology and business in there too. And of course, you can visit us at howtoacademy.com to find out what we've got in store for the summer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>